0: Welcome to the Flourishing After Addiction Podcast. I'm Carl Eric Fisher, an addiction psychiatrist and bioethicist. In this podcast, I'm going on deep dive explorations into addiction and recovery by interviewing people across a diversity of perspectives, from academic experts to people with lived experience. And this week, of note, I've got someone who certainly qualifies on both counts. My goal here is to respect the nuance and challenge of these topics while keeping it accessible and focused on what matters most for helping people to change and flourish. If this interests you, please head over to my website, sign up for my email list to stay up to date with the latest episodes, show notes, and other writings. And also, if you have ideas about future topics or questions for me to explore, please let me know. You can find all of that at carlericfisher.com. This episode's interview is with Professor Owen Flanagan, the James B. Duke University Professor of Philosophy at Duke University, where he's also a professor of neurobiology has appointments in a few other fields. He's a philosopher who's written extensively on consciousness, neuroscience, and mind, as well as ethics, morality, and responsibility. If that weren't enough, he has a long interest in Buddhism and cross-cultural philosophy. By my account, he's written over a dozen books, countless articles. Particular interest, he's written several philosophical articles on addiction, including his own experience as a person in recovery. I've been following and enjoying his work for a long time, since I was an undergrad at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. One of my lab mates in my neurobiology lab gave me Owen's book, Problem of the Soul. So Casey, if you're out there, thank you so much for that. Owen has been writing papers on addiction since when I was in early recovery. And his clarity and his humanism on this topic and what can be an otherwise dry and technical field was a huge help to me, both personally and professionally. So it was an honor to talk to him in this interview. We talk about Owen's experience with addiction recovery. And of note, His use was complicated by both a brain tumor and a bad medication reaction. So we talk about how he makes sense of the biological influences on his behavior, which is really fascinating for someone who spent a huge portion of his career exploring the relationships between neuroscience and philosophical topics like agency, responsibility, and the capacity to do otherwise. Owen talks about how, as a committed atheist and in his words, physicalist, he made sense of issues like powerlessness, higher power, and other sort of spirituality adjacent issues in recovery. Owen also has a new book out called How to Do Things with Emotions, and shame is a big part of that book. He has also written a significant earlier article on shame and addiction. Looking at the function of shame, the difference between healthy and unhealthy shame, and the difference between curious inquiry into shame versus harmful shaming practices. So in a nutshell, his position is, and I quote, feeling shame for addiction is not a mistake. We dive deeper into that provocative notion. In big picture, we talk about what morality has to do with addiction, how in Owen's own life, morality was a part of him facing up to the damage he caused, and how an ongoing practice of moral inquiry helped him in his own flourishing. So please enjoy my conversation with Owen Flanagan. So I'm here with Professor Owen Flanagan, Professor of Philosophy at Duke. You've written extensively on the mind, neuroscience, and morality. And then a big part of why I wanted to talk to you today is you also had some challenging issues with your life around substance use. And the way I have read it is that it inspired some philosophical inquiry in yourself. So I was hoping at the outset, you could set the stage for people who don't know your history as much. Could you just start off by talking about your own problems with drinking and how you've made sense with it? And I know that's a big question. So feel free to take all the time you need.
1: Yeah, no, that's a thank you for the opportunity, Carl, to talk about this. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I mean, my um, one way to sort of set out the both interest and uh, on the one hand, and then that sort of my difficulty at dealing with my own, the puzzle of myself is that I, I've always been interested in what makes humans tick and the nature of mind and consciousness and what brings meaning to a human life. And, you know, I have, a, I, I guess I would just say, like most philosophers, I have an inquisitive mind and specifically about the nature of the mind and the brain and so on. When it came to my own problems with uh, substance abuse, I was of no help whatsoever with myself because it was entirely bewildering to me. And I kind of, uh, I basically, the short version of my story is that I, I come from a family in which, you know, my parents were kind of, my father was a New York City businessman, came home, from uh, work. And uh, before dinner was a kind of a magical time involving cocktail hour. I never saw my parents drink excessively when I was a young person, but that was a sort of a magical part of life. And I always, I aspired to be a person who at the end of the day, after a busy uh, day doing something important in some place like Manhattan would come home and have a magical, you know, white drink in my father's case, uh, his martinis. I knew that we were a family of drinkers I don't mean heavy drinkers I just knew that all my cousins and aunts and uncles participated in this activity and I took it as you know perfectly normal that people drank in celebratory ways again I wasn't exposed to people I knew of some people in fact including some relatives who my parents would talk about who had a problem with alcohol but I wasn't really I don't think I knew the word alcoholism at a very young age I remember being in college and a friend wrote a Poem about a sot, and I read. I had to look up what a sot was, and I learned that a sot was a drunk. And I thought that was interesting. When I was in college, I was in college from nineteen sixty six to nineteen seventy. I drank like most people, which was a little bit on weekends, sometimes too much at a party. Uh, I mostly smoked pot in my last two years of college, almost every day. But I, I, I have a good relationship with marijuana. I, I don't smoke it anymore. I kind of just faded away from that, but by the time I was in my early 20s, I was living with a girlfriend in Boston. I had started graduate school, and she was the first person to tell me that she thought I drank too much. And I remember there was some "aha" between the two of us, and she said something to me, indicating that I should uh, maybe not take a day off or something like that. And I remember that was the I was maybe 24. That was the first time I tried to go a day without drinking. I didn't know I was a regular drinker, but that was a hard day. It was a very, very hard day. And I had, even then, I remember back vividly, there was kind of an obsession and compulsion to drink. I think, in fact, I failed at stopping that one day. I did something like I did for many, many years afterwards. I did some maintenance dosing out of her Vision, line of vision. I did maybe a quart of beer before she came home and tried to maintain that through the night. So I was having serious trouble in my 20s with drinking, although I didn't recognize it. I just thought there's some other people who have a little, there's a person who has a problem with the way I drink. I didn't think or know or recognize or allow in the thought that I had a serious problem with alcohol. Then Fast forward, I mean, for throughout my 20s, I think I I drank too much, but I kind of thought of myself as what I had by then thought of as my father, who's now deceased, a high-functioning social drinker. And uh, I think um, I partly thought that I was like a lot of people. I loosened up. I was better at parties. I was better at conversation if I had a few drinks in me. So that was a large part of my My 20s. In my early 30s, I got married. I had a child and then another child. And I was drinking pretty heavily to the point that it was causing trouble for my partner, then my ex wife. At least she would complain sometimes about my drinking. I think rather than adjusting my total amount of my drinking, I adjusted my exposure. I started to learn to strategize about whether I drank near her, in front of her around her, behave badly. So that was my sort of M.O. was to try to sort of negotiate how I would keep this substance in my life. Then in the late 80s, in, my mother died at a young age, 59 years old. And six weeks after that, my kid brother, uh, who was 17 years younger than me, died in a solo drunk driving accident. So when we buried my brother Peter, in New York, after the funeral, my, another brother of mine and I, that brother had also been in recovery. He, the other brother, we were cleaning out Peter's room and my children were then five and three, I think. And I said to my brother, Mark, drinking causes trouble in our family. I'm going to stop. And I did stop for seven years. Cold turkey. It was very hard though it was extremely hard i wouldn't go to aa at that time because i thought it was a religious cult and i have a sometime i'll tell you the full on story if you're interested carl but my father a cpa in manhattan was a drinker and he was also had the account the account for alcoholics anonymous because his elder partner had been one of the original New York Hundred Alcoholics, and when they published the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous in 1939, Wilbur Smith was given the account because you have to prove you're a nonprofit. My dad inherited the account, and he was often going up to the Rockefeller Estate and uh, in Pocono Hills for AA meetings. He was on the board. He appears. My dad appears in AA literature not as an alcoholic, as a member of the. Bored, So I had heard a lot of AA lore and I kind of thought, eh, it's not for me.
0: That's so interesting though. Can I pause and ask about the identity piece there though? So you uh, had a very strong family experience of problems with alcohol and you also had a f- experience of many people in your life who had a vision of alcoholism as a kind of condition or illness that uh some people can have. So even leaving aside the spiritual part there must have been a part of you back in the 80s that was thinking am i a person like this or am i a person like that? I mean, can you say more about the what resistance you had to that or how you thought about that? Well by then I knew
1: that several of my siblings and things had stopped drinking or stopped taking drugs. At certain points I knew that about some of my siblings, but we didn't talk about that very much. You we didn't talk about a lot of things. And I don't mean that as like we were sort of a, you know, we were a good family, a loving family. But there were, you sort of did, my dad was a soldier in the Second World War. You kind of, you shape up. <laughs> or as my dad used to say, you know, whenever the problem in life is, you straighten out and fly right. That was his expression. So it was a, probably a combination, Carl, of the desire to keep on maintaining what I knew to be, I knew that I, Jones, you know, I'd go, I, I had withdrawal problems if I ever stopped, or sometimes if I controlled my drinking, I knew by then that I did have those problems. So I, I as we say, I under theorized my own problems. I didn't kind of let myself go there to the full on idea of alcoholism. I just kept thinking. I often say at AA meetings, which I still go to, at every point that I could, I tried to worm my way out of that diagnosis of being an alcoholic, self-diagnosing, by thinking I had a dosing problem. And by then, I was taking also other pills, antidepressants, benzos. My doctors were helpful in that. And I was always thinking, I have, I know I need five of some set of substances a day to survive, and over 15 causes trouble. But the exact sort of units, was it vodka, beer, clonopin. you know, I mean, I kept, I kept thinking my trouble was because I hadn't hit the perfect dosage for me. So it was kind of insane. So I didn't do what you sort of suggested, but you must, you, you must see this all the time. People who have all the tools to conceptualize accurately what they're up to, but aren't able for whatever reasons, denial or other things. I mean, you're the psychiatrist; you could tell me. But I wasn't good at. I didn't. I wasn't able to do that.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, it looks insane from one perspective, and it's probably better that you stopped. One assumes, and at the same time, it's a messy concept, and that's what some of your writing has been about. Is we're not always clear as a society what we mean when we say addiction or alcohol or alcoholism, and it strikes me that in the '80s, that was a particularly interesting time in the history of recovery movements. And there was a lot of profiteering in treatment centers and a lot of like really ideological and single note messaging about the disease of alcoholism. And no, I can identify my father was a CPA in Manhattan too. And he and my mother had drinking problems as we were growing up in New Jersey and they were turned off by all of that. And I don't know if that was what was going on with you at all. But I think there are ways that a sort of ideologically driven vision of what addiction is and what recovery is can inhibit people's ability to find a path of recovery that works for them.
1: Yeah. I'm not sure if that was in my case, because I do think that I just didn't know. know, It's a weird reason. It's a little bit like the, my environment was so much filled with people who drank. I just wasn't I wasn't kind of exposed to the alternative. I just knew either people drank or they didn't drink because they had <laughs> drank too much. But it was, it was so, shall we say, under-theorized where I was. And uh, when I did, well, one of the interesting things to me, I mean, what, you're sort of, you know, what your website is very good at and what, what I've learned since. I hoped when I when I first had those, I had seven years after my brother died of where I was sober, but I didn't do any work on myself at all. And as you point out, you know, in your own work, flourishing and finding meaning and things like that, stopping drinking isn't enough. And um, always, maybe sometimes for some people it is enough for stopping drugs. But in my case, I did stop for seven years. Then what happened was really interesting to me and, and did make me finally go to Alcoholics Anonymous and also learn more about the Neurochemistry as much as I could about, you know, an interest I always had. I was very interested in things like finding out the mechanisms of visual perception or the mechanisms of auditory perception or how consciousness works. I love the details of that, the neuroscience of it. I stayed totally away from trying to learn anything about addiction until the following happened. In 1993, before I moved from Massachusetts, where I was teaching, down to North Carolina to come to my job at Duke, I had some symptoms and i had a really good doctor in cambridge who diagnosed a pituitary adenoma and i had symptoms of it those are dangerous because pituitary is the master gland of your body in certain ways it helps all the other systems work
0: and we should say sorry to interrupt but we should say for the non-neuroscience people that that that's a brain tumor it's a brain on the pituitary and can have um mental and cognitive effects
1: exactly Uh, i had effects Of it. And I had a good doctor. She gave me the blood work right away and she said, I think I know what it is. And we didn't know at the time whether it was growing or not growing. If it was growing, they might have to go in for it. If they go in for it, it's a problem. You can mess up other systems. If they don't go in for it, you could go blind. And the whole, you know, anyway, I was in some danger and I was distressed. And, uh, but I was moving to North Carolina and uh, a psychiatrist in North Carolina she was young, I don't blame her, but she did something which at the time you could do, but I don't think you guys do it anymore. She thought that she wanted to jumpstart my libido, which that's one of the effects of the pituitary, by giving me Welbutrin on top of Prozac. Those are two antidepressants for your audience. And when she did that, within a week, I I went into a manic state and i did things like buy a house i didn't need have an affair i didn't need drive to where andy griffith lived between classes and um, started drinking by the end of that week i realized what was happening to me i realized that the drug it was probably drug induced i stopped taking the, the welbutrin and I immediately recognized the mistakes of the house, the affair, and I stopped those things. But I couldn't stop drinking. By the end of the week, I was back drinking the way I was seven years before. And I was actually trying to do something rational. So I said to myself, you can only have like a bottle of wine and a six-pack of beer a day. And that was then, Carl, the terrible, terrible period that lasted then somewhere between seven and 10 more years. You know, I've been sober now for 14 years. And that was a time of five hospitalizations for detoxing, two 28-day programs, three DUIs, lost my wife. It was bad. And then a miracle happened. <laughs> and I had some guys who I met in AA, and they sat with me at a time 14 years ago on my porch when they didn't know whether I was going to choose to live or die, I mostly wanted to die. But I was aware that if you're dead, you can't drink anymore. And I was with to drink. And I also cared about my children and my loved ones. Uh, So I wanted to sort of try to make it to support them. But then I went to AA and I finally, I finally got better.
0: It sounds like an awful interstitial period. A lot of time between that first relapse and when you again re-entered recovery, I want to talk about the relapse for, for starters, because that's a tricky one for a lot of folks, how they make sense of responsibility and an impulse not resisted versus an irresistible impulse. And you had the two additional complicating factors of a brain tumor and a medication, but also in your other philosophical work, you write about Incorporating understanding of neuroscience along with psychological and sociological understandings of what makes people tick. And um, I don't know, I guess like the dream of reductionism would be like a thousand years from now, somebody could map your brain and say it was X percent because of the tumor and Y percent because of the medication. As I understand it, maybe this can be like a we can start to touch upon some of your philosophical topics. As I understand, you resist that kind of explanation. And you're very invested in addiction as a person-level phenomenon. And not strictly as a neurobiological one. So, can you talk more about if that's right? Can you talk more about the, like responsibility and agency, and what what causes matter to that choice you made, that faithful that faithful choice to to relapse back then?
1: Well, you know, again, I, I take it that uh, yeah. So yeah, I am a I am a fan, as you say, of sort of person level explanations but i'm also you know what in philosophy we call a physicalist i mean i think that we are animals like other animals in the world but we're extraordinarily obviously cultured and socialized in a certain way so one reason i tell the story of my family growing up and i didn't even go into a parallel story i which is that i grew up in we were roman catholic irish identified roman catholics And I came to a school where I had to be an altar boy, much younger than other altar boys. Now, again, not only was there the beautiful ritual of my parents having their magical cocktails before dinner, there was also the Catholic Mass in those days before uh, Vatican II, 1963, I think that was, was in Latin. It involved alcohol first thing in the morning. I had a whole view of the world. As alcohol being magical. And I identified with the view that we flanagans were drinkers. We were responsible drinkers. That was, but I it was a little bit, it was, it was something that I identified with as a story of the kind of person I am, the kind of people we are. And I have lots of cousins. I had 26 cousins over, you know, in Jersey and Connecticut, first cousins. I know from Facebook. You know, a lot of my wonderful cousins still are able to drink happily, and they have celebrations around alcohol, and I do envy them sometimes, and because uh, we are like that <laughs> on my side. So, the the, the, the person-level thing, I think, partly is just that I think it's just more than whatever particular features of my brain chemistry is. I assume that something weird happened to me over time, maybe, due to the... Situation in my brain. And I, you know, I love the thought sometimes of there being things like medications that could help me leverage what was my dominant desire, which is, damn it, Owen. You know, at the end of my drinking, I think I've written about this, I know I've written about this, and I don't know if it's in something you read, but I would wake up every morning at the end and you know, be ashamed again of the night before and say, well, this is the first day of the rest of my life. But then it felt as if the overwhelming compulsion took over and I was in my car on the way to the BP station at 6.58. At seven o'clock as it opened, I bought three Heinekens and I chugged one as I got back into the car to steady my nerves. Every day was like that. So there was a real disconnect between my conscious desires and plan and what I would normally... So I did think of it as an aberrant physiological state. I don't know how to mesh these together, but I I did feel like part of the pull of it for me was just that I I had worked out a life in which drinking was supposed to be part of it for me. And now I was facing a life where it was supposed to not be part of it, and I couldn't seem to get there. But uh, I take it that there are lots of places that between therapists and i've had wonderful therapists over the years you know they've helped me leverage and control as we say you know the settings and the situations i'm in at first i really needed that because many people in um, meetings i go to you know will tell about the experience they had where once they stopped they felt better once i stopped even the last time if I was talking to you in the first six months of that, I was thinking it would drink. It was about six months before I suddenly had fifteen minutes where I wasn't desiring a drink. It was
0: hell, but it doesn't happen anymore. That's an important point, I think, because um, my understanding from the recovery literature, which is criminally underinvestigated, but we're starting to get more and better data these days, that on average people feel worse in the first six months of recovery. But there is this sort of drive for a sort of like Dantean descent and recovery and the extolling all of like the beauty of a life in recovery. So sometimes people miss, I think sometimes people in recovery sometimes miss that like, it can be really challenging. And it's, it's really more of signing up for a marathon than it is like getting some basket of prizes.
1: That's a really good way to put it. And I think that's a, yeah, I remember in the early days, saying sometimes not only was I still suffering the sort of felt like the compulsive thinking that, you know, it felt like a a kind of an OCD revolving around alcohol, frankly. I mean, from what I read about it, you know, I just was not able to get the thought out of my head and I was not able to get the desire out of my body for a long time. Plus there was the fact that being sober, I had to face up to a lot of damage I had done. That was hard because at least one consequence of drinking morning drinking was, all that shame, including about the drinking the day before, but also about you know the way I wasn't showing up for relationships with people I loved and doing my job the way I believed. in. I did at least dull that right away. And then once you get sober,
0: you have to face that. Right. Yeah. So you, you mentioned shame a couple of times. So we should go there because that I think is a really provocative notion of yours, probably provocative to a lot of folks in treatment or policy. And the way I understand it is that you, you, you've you written that addiction involves a moral failure and there's a way in which feeling shame for addiction is not a mistake. And so can you explain more about the shame? What's the good shame for addiction or what's the helpful shame of addiction?
1: Yeah. So there is, I mean, this is a, a bigger a topic for a, a longer discussion some other time because i have a I just have a new book out actually that's on anger and shame, how to do the emotions. So I take a sort of a uh, on the one hand a, a particular view on shame there's a there's an orthodoxy in American psychology that shame is a really bad emotion. It leads actually to all kinds of terrible things like eating disorders, addictions, self-loathing, and so on and so forth. I've looked at the shame literature from other cultures, and other cultures don't think of shame that way. They just think of it like if a parent, if even, and I don't think we need to think about it as a completely all-encompassing "I'm a worthless piece of shit" attitude towards oneself. So think about, you know, when a parent says to a child, "You ought to be ashamed of not sharing with your the M and M's with your sister," or "You ought to be ashamed for hitting your sister." They're not saying you should feel like a total failure. They're just saying that in this particular domain. You should not be shameless. You should want to step up your game. And actually, what you'll find out as you get older, young child, is that there's reward in sharing the M and M's evenly with your sister, and there's a reward with sharing the blocks and building the Lego thing together. So we're, I don't think that you know the ordinary use of shame is totalizing. I think in my own case, the shame I felt was motivational and it, although it did sometimes feel totalizing because i did addiction is one of those things where you really cause your whole you can cause your whole life to fall apart everything falls apart because you're focused on one thing but i did feel that i wasn't living up to my own standards of what a good person was i don't want to overly moralize it but i was a i was a husband who took vows i was a father who believed in fatherly duties I was an academic who believed in doing a really good job on my work. And I wasn't, do- I wasn't doing any of those things properly. So that was motivational. I had a sort of a vision of what I was supposed to be, what sometimes I would think the old Owen was able to pull off. And that. so having that goal in mind and being ashamed of the way that drinking was interfering with it was motivating for me. And you might say, well, maybe, you know, it was guilt. Well, maybe. I mean, Americans use the words guilt and shame, you know, in sometimes similar ways. But I I didn't think it was all bad. I think sometimes, you know, there are things that are worthy to be ashamed of. And that tells us that there's another way to go, or there's another track possibly uh, to go down. So, yeah, and I think, you know, on a separate note, I think one of the main problems that we have now in America, we see this politically, is a kind of shamelessness, shamelessness about looseness with the truth, looseness with honesty, looseness with caring about the common good. And I think that's a serious problem. It's a lot more serious problem than feeling shame. Self-hatred is not a good thing. But but I think in my own case, I thought that the shame was motivating and, um, you know, something to be used in the project of recovery.
0: Mm. Yeah. What I hear you doing is getting really granular and clear about what we're talking about when we talk about shame. And that strikes me as useful because I think the my understanding of the pop psychology sort of TED Talk TV special version of shame is that guilt is fine because it is about an action and then you can think pragmatically about it. But shame is a use the word totalizing. It's just a total judgment of myself as a bad thing. And it's too blunt and it's too harsh to do anything useful or effective. But it sounds like you're talking about a different, different nuances in shame, shame around public conduct, but then also shame about addiction. There's a type of there's a type of shame in addiction, the shame of not living up to my intentions and then also the shame of not living up to my actions that's worth looking at. Yeah, that's right.
1: And trying to get back to leveraging because you knew you were the kind of person. I mean, I do think, you know, again, you know more about this than I do, certainly. But, you know, there was something about using which felt entirely different from other kinds of temptations. Because other kinds of temptation, usually one can say, well, I can avoid that. I don't have to go down that road. I don't have to eat more ice cream. I don't have to eat more chocolate cake. I don't have to go to the racetrack, at least in my case. This one sometimes felt so compulsive, but I thought there's got to be ways to leverage it. I might need other people. Like I might need, and I did need my therapist. I did, you know, uh, in my own case, I got, I didn't have medications that were particularly focused on that, but I was ready to use everything in the arsenal to figure out how to regain control. And it might've taken, it it sort of took a village in my case, I want to say.
0: Yeah. Well, listen. I think there might be a few things I know better than you, but you're really the expert when it comes at the intersection of neuroscience and morality, and uh, ethics. Yeah, that to me seems like one of the stickiest wickets here is uh, bringing morals. Here's what I understand you to be doing. Tell me if I'm right or wrong. I understand you to be trying to bring in a discussion of morals, and I guess you call it virtue. What's good? What's true? What's beautiful? into a discussion about shame and feeling states in addiction without moralizing. And that's tough. I don't know exactly how to go about that. So tell me more about that project if I'm on the right track.
1: And again, you know, there's sort of this funny thing I do. Well, not funny, I guess, you know, my work on addiction insofar as I do that, I sort of had that on the side, you know, and partly actually that has to do with, to be perfectly honest, you know, with the fact that Like I'm getting close to retiring from my job at Duke, you know I'm seven. I'm in my early 70s, and you know I've been I've been in recovery a long time, and I have some confidence in my recovery. But I don't always write about addiction. I write on addiction on sort of the side, and I publish articles on that on the side. I'm bringing them together now in something I'm writing. But most of my work on thinking about emotions in general and moral life, you know, is just around sort of big issues like the extent to which human flourishing involves stepping up for the people you love and friends and other people and, you know, being concerned about a bigger good than yourself, getting outside of yourself. And I think, you know, that is where most of us locate meaning and have, have our well-being is, is embedded in these communities. The thing about getting in the grip of an addiction, of course, is that it's a very selfish state. And you know it, and maybe if you're lucky, you know you don't want it. You, something, you know, something. Things have unfolded in a way, partly due to your own participation in a certain activity. I mean, you know, we all know that most um, alcoholics or substance abusers did not predict or want to end up in that terrible state that they were in. They thought they were going to dodge that bullet, and of course, we do know, right, that most people do dodge that bullet and most people you know as you say on your uh, very helpful website all that work about you know whatever it is you know so many, a large percentage of people in america i guess men i'll say have at some point or other problems with drugs or alcohol but then they stop and i i've seen that and god bless those people which i, wish I had been one of them <laughs> uh,
0: yeah the The burden of addiction falls disproportionately on marginalized groups, both because the notion of addiction is used as a weapon and a tool for social control against black and brown people and also because actual addiction is driven by social determinants of health, like poverty, discrimination, racism, et cetera. And so I worry this is just what I'm wondering through. I don't know the answer, but i like I worry that, you know, is is this sort of like very nuanced and philosophically rich notion of shame? Is that, is that like a privilege? Like, is there a danger that that then becomes weaponized against people? I mean, we see evidence of the way shameful notions of addiction are weaponized in treatment settings where people are kicked out for relapsing or, you know, otherwise are essentially punished. So how do we, how do we stay conscious of like the possible misuses of shame here?
1: The kind of shame that, you know, I'm, Interested in, you're right. I mean, well, first of all, the good news is that I wasn't proposing any particular sort of public health use of this concept because I do think I do think shaming and humiliating people is terrible. And I actually think that one of the things about shaming and humiliating is that it's done by some group, sometimes the more powerful, the older, the whiter, the richer, against, exactly as you said. But I don't think that shame, shame, the feeling of shame in and of itself has anything necessarily to do with shame and humiliation. Again, go back to the parent example. The parents who say to the child, and notice the parents don't usually say you ought to be guilty that you didn't share the M&Ms with your sister. They just say you should be ashamed of yourself. And again, they're not saying you ought to be. They're just trying to indicate that there are certain standards that we expect you eventually to live up to, and you'll find out that they're their own reward. So, I don't really think that shaming and humiliation need to be the causes of shame. It could just be straightforward, you know, sort of uh, instruction about how you ought to be. So, I'm not in favor. I don't want to like rehabilitate shaming practices. That's terrible. I just think something like a mature sense of shame where you know that there are certain things you want to do and that you would feel ashamed if you didn't do. Some people say that guilt is anger directed towards yourself. And I'm not sure guilt is such a good thing either, you know, but so both shame and guilt, you know, they have some problems. Just to go, so just, you know, so all I want to say is something like this, that in my own case, and maybe for other people who feel ashamed about the grip they're in from their drug, that could be motivational. But I don't want a culture, you know, and again, you're totally right. I mean, I was so aware. I was talking to my wife about this yesterday. I forget why it came up. You know, but again, I remember it scared the Jesus out of me in the 80s, living in New York and Boston at the time, you know, the crack cocaine scare. And I remember reading articles in the Times that you would have thought no one in the history of the universe ever recovered from crack usage. And it was just so used to demonize and control. And it was a black person's disease. So we, we know how that history has been.
0: So let me ask about your recovery then, because you mentioned that you had resistance to the spiritual and religious appearing elements of 12-step programs, but then something happened where you were able to enter recovery. So tell me, maybe you can start by asking you, just what is your understanding of recovery? How do you think about recovery?
1: Well, maybe it's best if I just say some concrete things about how I sort of worked through that stuff with AA, and maybe that will help us understand how I think about recovery. I did try, you know, after I had the the relapse and was out for a long time, many years, I often had like three to six-month periods where I was just not drinking but it was uh, it was always hard i was always but i did start to go to aa and i was lucky you know being in north carolina you know i I'm, I'm in an area of north carolina that's not sort of like the buckle of the bible belt but i was actually i did go to rehab at the very end in nashville tennessee which was the bu- the uh, you know the buckle of the bible belt and uh you know it, that would have been a very hard place for me to have started going to aa because listeners may know you know the aa says you know we get a relationship with a higher power as we under god as we understand him but in meetings i went to in nashville god as we understand him is jesus and it was a sort of a social environment you know you always get this where the social environment can you know control the interpretation that was exactly why initially didn't want to go to AA because I thought it was very religious. I actually knew a little bit about the history of it, you know, and its relation to Oxford groups, which were these Christian perfectionist groups. So that was my first time around. But luckily, when I went to some meetings in Durham, North Carolina, one of my first meetings, this British guy, who's now 86 years old and is my first sponsor, stood up and he said, when he was sober for a very long time. He said, I'm a um, atheist, and I've been able to get sober in this program. That was very helpful. I immediately cornered him, and uh, then I met a few other guys who were like that because I really was scared. I mean, I was such a staunch religious disbeliever that I was worried about the cognitive dissonance of being among people who told me I had to believe in certain things. So I was really lucky enough to find people who were... Like fellow travelers, and but who had found the group really, really helpful. And then, when I found this is sort of one sense of recovery, I did find people who were extraordinarily generous with their time. And I realized that was a common thing in AA. You might not like another person at an AA or an NA meeting, but you never wanted them to drink again. And I just thought that was beautiful. And I came to have that view too. I think, oh, that guy's a jerk. Um, He's mean, but I don't, oh, but I would feel terrible if you ever drank again. And you, you know, you go out for ice, people would go out for ice cream after meetings with me and stay out, sitting out with ice cream and coffee. And I found, because I was so alone by the end, so my recovery was sort of with people who were loving and compassionate and were willing to, yeah, spend time with me and cared. About it a lot. They became friends. And, you know, like it says, we're people from all different walks of life. I mean, you know, to this day, many of my best friends, my plumber, my electrician, you know, the people that I go to, they are salt of the earth. We don't agree politically, but they care about me in that domain of life. And uh, uh, so my recovery was largely due to kind, compassionate people helping me and my realizing that they were there. And then I started gradually just to get back things. I don't, I don't have any secret. I'm not a big, you know, I'm very interested in things like meditative traditions, but I'm not a big meditator. I found in early recovery, the serenity prayer, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can. I found that very useful. I had to say that all the time. There's a stoic saying too, you can say, which is be indifferent to indifferent things. That started to be, that was helpful to me like things that seemed to be really mattering that didn't matter. I, I sort of let go. So I did use some techniques of prayer and meditation, community. And I finally got to the point, my favorite, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a big, I know the big book inside out, because I just got to so many meetings. I kind of know it, but I think it's the uh, an eighth, eighth or ninth step. It says, uh, It basically says I continued to take personal inventory and when I was wrong, promptly admitted it. That's the key to my recovery because what started to happen was um, after about a year, this relates back to maybe feeling of shame, I started to go to bed at nighttime and think, I did everything I was supposed to today. Like I like myself. I like the way I live today. So I took personal inventory in the sense of like, Oh, I'm not, I don't have a guilty conscience. I don't feel ashamed. I stepped up. I did the next right thing all the time. And then I loved that feeling. And then those days started to accumulate. And, uh, yeah, it's not, it hasn't been rocket science. It's been sort of simple showing up for life, you know, looking forward to every day, looking forward to doing what I'm supposed to do, being there for the people that I love. And, uh, and I'm lucky most of my relationships that were damaged with my ex-wife and my children have
0: been largely repaired i would say that's great congratulations and then thinking about your work i have to wonder so you as a philosopher are allergic to the false dichotomy of free will versus determinism you just hate it and then as i understand it, and then you also sound like you're still a committed atheist but then so in this program there's, there's this notion of powerlessness, and then there's still an idea of a higher power. So that's the thing that seems very sticky and like real breeding ground for denial for people who are kind of interested, but having some sort of hang up or rationalization about it. So how did you make sense of that? Well, I just was so desperate. Maybe <laughs> I don't <laughs> think I made sense of
1: it. I mean, I think what I did was come to terms with it, Carl, in the following way. I just thought, okay, AA is another set of social practices that came out of, I mean, you know, again, you just, there's some, you, you know, the good books. I think that Kurtz book is a really good book on called no God, you know, I am not God about the history of alcoholism. Right. uh, Ernie Kurtz
0: and not God. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a nice book about the history of the program. There's another book that I read this past summer, which is really in the nitty gritty history. It's a big rock crusher, but I don't remember the author. In any case, but I, I was, I thought right away, I just thought, okay, I get that AA, it could have started in synagogues, but it didn't. It started in Christian, you know, in these Oxford groups that were dedicated to a certain kind of moral perfectionism. That, you know, and then out of that, you know, it came AA. So I thought, well, as soon as I understand where it came from, then I'm not going to fuss about things that they're in charge of. They're allowed to talk about, you know, the way that they found their way. It was also actually, in many respects, congenial to me because, of course, I was raised as a Roman Catholic and I did get the importance of confessional practices to a point. You know, you go into a booth and you tell the priest how many times you hit your sister, or uh, did whatever. So I got that. And I got the ideas about taking personal inventory. And I sure as hell got the idea that I was powerless over alcohol for all intents and purposes by myself. You know? And then as you know, in many meetings, but it depends on the locality of the meetings, many people will say, you need a higher power, but the higher power, of course, can be the group you know, other humans, you're in solidarity with other humans. So eventually, I stopped being a member of the debating club, and just thought, there are enough people like me in these rooms. I don't have any trouble, by and large, with the, you know, way the meetings are held. I know what you know, I mean, like, when I sometimes I go to meetings in other parts of the world, like at the meetings, I remember when I um, when I first went to the meeting in North Carolina, we had this woman who's now deceased. Dot was the pa- the matriarch of the group. And I was kind of appalled that they said the Our Father holding hands after the meetings, like 100 people. And I said to Dot, I said, you know, the Our Father. I said, first of all, you say the Protestant Our Father, not the Catholic Our Father. But secondly, we've got Jews and atheists and Muslims in this room. And she said, they Owen. They say the Our Father, too. <laughs> so <laughs> and I just thought, well, you know, she's sweet and dear and adorable. And what the heck? I mean, and but in other countries, of course, at AA meetings like in the UK, they would never, ever say the Our Father because they realize. But they sometimes will say the serenity prayer. So there's just certain battles. I was so desperate by the end. That was a battle I sure didn't need to be part of. By the way, on free will, just a just quick comment. It's more that I just think philosophers, when they decided to talk about free will and determinism, it just hasn't gone anywhere. So what I suggested really was a return to an old way of talking about things of degrees of voluntary control and involuntariness. I mean, we know some things like knee jerks and pupil contractions are totally involuntary. We know that maybe other things like, oh, deciding, choosing which college to go to is purely voluntary. What seemed to me true of alcoholism is it's mixed. And, and the question was how to leverage parts that could be put under voluntary control. It wasn't quite like a pupil contraction or a knee jerk, but it wasn't quite like a free choice either, and, uh, which is maybe why it's so bewildering.
0: Right. So it's not about powerlessness as some sort of philosophical idea of total neurobiological compulsion or hijacking, which I think is where some of the language goes sometimes, just that there's an individual experience of being powerless and powerless enough that someone needs help expanding their zone of control as you've written or just finding a way to get the help they need
1: yeah like you know people like i think it's gene Heyman. is that he the one that addiction that addiction choice i mean i think people like him have really pointed out something very useful which is that Again, just to take the pure involuntary reflex thing, you can't will that your eye doesn't, pupils don't contract or do whatever they're doing to light and darkness. You just can't will that. But everybody, even people with suffering terrible addictions, control scheduling to a point. Like you can wait an hour to take your next dose if you have to. And that shows that there's some leverage we have. And then the question is how to get help from professionals yourself your family your loved ones you know to leverage it so that what is the hour you can control it becomes the day that you can control it
0: you've also written a lot about buddhism and you've been involved in conversations around buddhism and i can't help but think that when we talk about will and powerlessness and the the sort of like mainline Protestant origins of AA that, that that has a sort of legacy of a particular focus on self-determination and agency. That's not even found in other versions of Christianity. And so I'm just wondering when it comes to thinking about choice and compulsion and agency and addiction, if the explorations with Buddhism or Eastern philosophy or other cultures in general, did that help you at all? Or is there any way that those types of perspectives on The self and choice to help you to make sense of the phenomenon?
1: Yeah. I'm very interested in different ways that different cultures figure out what I call the varieties of moral possibility. The different way, there are different ways of being human. I mean, that's sort of like, you know, you realize if if Carl Eric Fisher had been adopted out to a Chinese family or an African family, he's not the same guy. At the end of it possibly a very good and worthy happy guy but not the same guy and uh same you know so i think what there are some things in you know all the other since i do a lot of cross cultural work every other tradition sort of first of all one thing to notice about other traditions i mean owen flanagan probably doesn't become an alcoholic if he's raised in saudi arabia (laughs) right? I mean, same genes, same body, whole thing. Relatedly, it helps me understand things like, I mean, some things about Buddhism, which are very helpful to me, have been the emphasis on certain kinds of perspective-taking about the self, about a self that thirsts and grabs and ego tries to absorb everything into itself. You know, it made me think about in a different way about something I can think of in our cultural tradition, but it's about you know, what was I trying to do to myself? What pain was I trying to hide? I mean, I'm. we haven't talked much about this, but I think I indicated that I saw a very good effect of drinking the first time I had a drink. I felt it. I know what it was. It was not being scared, feeling safe in the universe. Now, that's an interesting thing, you know, to think about. What was it either about me or the world or maybe just... The general plight of being a human being that made me a little bit scared, and I liked something that made me less scared. And um, you know, and I think Hannah Pickard—I don't know if you know her. She's a really good philosopher. Writes on addiction at uh, Hopkins. She's also written about shame. She talks about shame without blame. But what I was going to say about her work—I mean, she really likes to emphasize that. And Carl Hart does this too. Most people who take drugs of any sort. Do it because it has positive effects, at least at first. You know, so Buddhism helped me think about taking certain perspectives on what's urgent, what's not urgent, keeping myself in perspective. If I show up at the party and and boring because I haven't had a drink, that's life. The party will go on and I will go on, you know, so... It's been very good as a perspective taking thing and certain types of meditation have been useful in terms, just like, you know, in AA, of course, it talks about prayer and meditation. They were not thinking about Buddhist meditation, but they, many groups, as you know, have now incorporated those styles of meditation into their techniques. So it helps me think about human change and you know, all these other traditions where people turn out to be different kinds of persons. And I've been lucky enough, I've gone to AA meetings in Buddhist countries, in Confucian countries, and it's quite interesting, you know, how different
0: they can be. So a keystone essay for you was 2011. You wrote this essay, What Is It Like to Be an Addict? And I'm just mindful of the fact that you. it's been 10 years. So how has your view changed or evolved since then? Your view of yourself or your view of addiction in general? I
1: did think in writing that article, and you know this, I was asked by someone who knew of my own problems, a philosopher, to speak at a society meeting of a society I'd been the president of, the Society for Philosophy and Psychology. So it was a moment of self-disclosure that I didn't quite want to do publicly, but felt it was important to do. Because one thing that AA taught me, and I've said this, or one thing recovery has taught me, I don't need to say AA, because I don't want to make it special, although it's wonderful, it's been wonderful for me, (laughs) is that, and by the way, I don't go that often anymore. I go sometimes, but I have people who i always with from AA, but uh, when I wrote that article. Uh, trying to, uh, I thought that one of my duties would be to say. So philosophers and psychologists who write about addiction, they know, as it were, the neuroscience of addiction. Sometimes, insofar as there is a, you know, relatively there's interesting competing stories, as you know, about the neuroscience, which systems are implicated. Is it a midbrain mutiny? Is it the wanting and liking systems that get cross firing? Is it, you know, learning circuits that get Perfectly activated, so that you know, you know Stephen Curry can't miss a three-pointer. Flanagan can't miss a martini down the throat. You know, is it that kind of thing? <laughs> you know, so there's that view. So philosophers know a lot about that, those stories. And in fact, on the panel that I was speaking at was uh, George Ainsley, who is the midbrain mutiny, hyperbolic discounting guy, and a few other people. But in any case, but I thought it was important because of beliefs I have about how to study consciousness that I tell something about the first person story, combine the first person to tell them what it felt like to be. And I focus mostly on the sort of turning point time, the compulsion and the desires. It's related, you know, it comes from a title of a famous paper by a philosopher called What It's Like to Be a Bat, where he tries to imagine the way into the internal life of a bat. I tried to tell from the first person point of view what it was like to be an addict. And I will, uh, a book with that title will be coming out. So, what has changed though? Well, one thing that changed is at the time that I wrote that, I treated my addiction to alcohol and my addiction to benzos the same way. And I've come to think they're probably different, although I was very, even when I was off alcohol for various periods, I was always taking a lot of Clonopin. Uh, I love that drug. But I think now, probably that is where the language of physical dependence is better than some other language. I kind of I guess I went saying, the phenomenology feels to me like the thing I had with alcohol was a obsession and compulsion aspects to it. The thing I had with clonopin was I liked its effects, and I didn't like going off it. I had real terrible withdrawal symptoms, but it didn't have the same kind of. Uh, obsessiveness associated with it. So, But I was—I had problems getting off it and uh, it had powerful effects when I went off it uh, for a while. It took me a while to get evened out. So that's one thing that may, maybe that we need different stories about the phenomenology, that is the inner experience of different substances. Since I've never been, as it were, a substance user, abuser of heroin Or cocaine, I don't know the story there. And I also know, certainly I was a, you know, I was a daily user of marijuana for several years back in the seventies, but I didn't seem to have any problem just that evaporated. So I would want to tell like different stories from my own perspective about different drugs that have been in my life. I read something a couple of years ago. You, I, uh, I don't think it, it caught on, but um, when I was writing something about addiction, there was a uh, some important document, maybe out of the Surgeon General's office, came out, and it said at the beginning, you know, it it started out by saying, we no longer refer, you know, scientifically to alcoholism or addiction. We now use substance use disorder. Yeah, is that the phrase? But then it said. It went on to say in, this UN, in the uh, certain general report that some people found that shaming, that they were changing it to something else. I forget what it was. Maybe substance misty. Well, I don't remember, but I thought, damn it, this is like, I don't know. It, it, it sort of struck me as it goes back to the problem that you said about, yeah, these designations can seem shameful. It is embarrassing, shall we say, to say you're an addict. To, i mean i t- speaking for myself it, it's not it's not like one of the things i want to say i like it when the people say you're the author of 10 books i don't like it when people say you're <laughs> that's all <laughs> you know and so it isn't like the first thing you want to say you know or even the 10th thing you want to say about yourself but if it's true and it helps people it's important but i think that um, i think there probably are differences we know that there are differences in the way different drugs which systems they activate Of course, the things that are non-substances don't do anything directly to the biochemistry, so it's hard to say what they're doing. Presumably they're doing something physical, but it might be different physical things in different bodies. Yeah, so I think it'd be, you know, and we do know from the literature, from some really good literature, both by artists and by just ordinary people, summaries by psychiatrists and things about how different drugs feel for people, you know, that they, what the different phenomenologies are. I think that's an important part of the story. And it's one thing that, you know, I find that binds people in AA meetings. They understand together collectively many of the stories that people tell about their relationship to alcohol. So I don't think I've changed, I, I don't think I've changed a lot of what I say there, partly because what I say there, Carl, is mostly my first personal experience of what it was like to be in the grip but I don't think that my story generalizes to everyone. I mean, one reason is like you were saying that in the big book of alcoholics anonymous, it says, if you think you can be a controlled drinker, try it. And then, and then it says, because of course, you know, most of the people in the early AA were, you know, low bottom drinkers, really very severe.
0: I thought maybe as a closing thought, I could ask you because you, you occupy this space overlooking the whole field and overlooking the intersections of different fields. What do you think most people miss about addiction? What do you wish that people in general just understood better about the phenomenon?
1: The first thing that comes to mind is for a certain kind of addict, a kind who really is wanting to get out of the spiral of addiction. And not everyone is. Some people can... I think, maintain their addiction in a way that fits or suits a life. You know, I think this is one of the things we now know. I think here are some some things that Carl Hart writes about, maybe including his own experience. But I think that the overwhelming sadness and feeling of being trapped and caught of many people who are trying to get out of that cycle that they can't find their way. And that's often a shocking discovery. And it's very painful to a person who's trying to escape the cycle. In my experience, though, most people are sympathetic, but at least in my world, an understanding of addiction. But that's something I would want them to know about how deeply painful it is to the addict, not just the pain of avoiding the substance of choice but just the sort of existential predicament that they can find themselves in that is uh, so love helps it doesn't need to be love from the family necessarily that's good but that's where other addicts can come in and as i say about the two guys who saved me on my porch my friends who didn't know which way i was going they they kind of loved me back
0: beautiful thank you very much so Owen Flanagan, thanks so much for taking the time. Is there any any place you want to send folks for people to learn about your work or uh, just any sort of call to the audience?
1: Oh, none of I have no social media presence whatsoever. They can... <laughs> but uh, you, know, you can always look on the Duke website, the Duke Philosophy website. And you have a new book coming out, right? I have a new book called How to Do Things with Emotions, The Morality of Anger and Shame Across Cultures. just came out last week from Princeton University Press.
0: Congratulations. A story of the shamelessness of modern American discourse and the need, at least in part, for a healthy dose of shame. I think very provocative, very interesting concept. Thanks for talking about it with me. Thank you, Carl. That's my interview with Owen Flanagan. A few points I wanted to linger on. One theme I appreciate is how Owen continually returned to the social component of both use and recovery, how his use was driven by a social context, and how he needed social supports for his own recovery. It wasn't just a personal or individual point. For more on that topic, stay tuned for one of my upcoming episodes, where I interview social psychologist Jay von Bavel, who's going to talk about the neuroscience and psychology of social identity in relationship to addiction and recovery. I also loved how Owen described how, initially, he thought that his problem with alcohol was a dosing problem. He just needed to get the right number of drinks or substances right. But then, when he stopped using alcohol and drugs, the stopping wasn't enough. And it was at that point he had to address the person-level issues like shame and connectedness and his personal practice of morality and recovery And at the same time, I want to emphasize his point that while he talks about the ways that shame might be motivational or useful in addiction, that does not mean we should use shaming in our response to addiction, not in a therapeutic context and not just in an interpersonal context. Instead, what I hear him saying is it's more about just being honest about the pain of addiction, how addiction is more than a dosing problem, it's more than just craving and withdrawal. But also acknowledging and being with and working on healing the pain of addiction, that existential pain of not being able to control one's behavior and having trouble living up to values, goals, and standards. If you're interested in learning more about any of these topics we've discussed, head on over to my website. Sign up for my newsletter, and you'll get a PDF I've created about the different paths to recovery, which touches on a number of the topics that Owen and I discussed. You can also check out the show notes for this episode where I'll link to a number of the other thinkers and scholars that Owen discussed, like Hannah Pickard and Thomas Nagel. I'm doing this podcast because, as Owen described, I think it's important to tell these stories, to talk about addiction and recovery, and to bring more attention and care to these topics. If you agree, I'd be so grateful if you could help me get the word out. You could hit share on your podcast player now, or just send an email to one other person who you think would find it useful. Another great way to help is please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It's a major way that people find new podcasts. But most of all, just thanks for listening. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It isn't medical or clinical advice. The content is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have questions, please consult a medical professional. Conflicts of interest are an important topic in addiction and recovery. For now, it's just me bringing these conversations to you ad-free for their own sake. I do have a list of disclosures about my work and other positions on my website, which I will keep updated.